Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 104. 104 episodes of the Weekly Word Podcast, and every week it seems like we're getting a few new listeners, and of course, I'm helped by the promotion of Rich and me being on his podcast, but I've also noticed that in the many months that go between my time on Coach's Corner with Rich, that the podcast continues to grow and I get different emails and um, emails of support and um, encouragement from many of you. And it continues to be something I love to do and I enjoy sharing. But what is the Weekly Word Podcast? Because so many of you are new. Well, I discuss what athletes need to do in order to achieve their ultra endurance goals. It's basically that simple. Of 25 years of coaching and swim coaching and being coached and doing this ultra endurance training and racing from the 35 to 38 Ironmans I've done, I don't even remember anymore, to the numerous 50Ks, 50 milers, 100Ks, 100 milers, the ultra endurance adventures across the board to the numerous, numerous thousands of athletes that I've coached over the years. And this is primarily a podcast for my athletes, but it has grown to being many more than just my athletes. Um, it has become many people who maybe they can't afford coaching or are just dabbling in the endurance world or just curious. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm just sharing as much as I can because everything that I received in the ultra endurance world was given to me by others sharing it as well. Yes, I've had coaches in my life too, of course, but they also gave me so much more than what I was technically paying for. And sure, I was a sponge and kept bugging them and asking a lot of questions about why and how come and what it all means and the big picture and so forth. But I was also fortunate enough to be around some very, very influential and knowledgeable and caring and thoughtful coaches in a variety of sports, but also in this ultra endurance worlds from the Scott Jurex of the world to the Mark Allens and the Dave Scott's in the world to the Greg Welch's to, I mean, anybody to the Wendy Ingram's, anybody who's anybody in the triathlon world to the ultra endurance running world to now to the bigger adventures world. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate and thankful and grateful to come across some amazing athletes, those who've climbed Everest, those who've trekked across some amazing distances, those who have won four deserts, or uh, not won four deserts, excuse me, have won multi-stage races from Marathon de Sables to adventure racers, to professional adventure racers, to solo sailors around the world, everything across the board. And of course, through my years in swimming in college, as well as doing this sport and being one step removed from a lot of guys and now starting to see some girls um, who have been in the military at that level where um, ultra endurance and special operators and special techniques and special, um, not forces, that's not the description I'm looking for, but special skills are needed and required when it comes to being able to be your best athletic self out there in, um, 
an environment where your life is on the line and you need to make good, sound decisions with a fitness level and a strength level and a mindset level that um, allows you to be uh, and perform and represent and lead at your best. And that's what the Weekly Word Podcast has become. It has become a community of questions, of coaches, of athletes, of those curious, of those listening in. And what I do is I try to take those questions and those themes that I see from my athletes and I talk on this podcast as if I'm talking to the athletes I coach. Um, It allows me to stay more personal with it and connected to it because I get thousands of training logs a week with regards to updates and what athletes are observing and the questions they are having they have and I try to bring those themes up here from strategy to training to fueling to hydration to mindset and most importantly because we all went pro in something other than sports how to balance this all and how to be an endurance athlete, to how to have the best athletic version of yourself come forward on a daily basis, despite having a busy life with family and career and community and other interests. And there is a space for it to work. It might not always be in balance or of the highest priority, but for you to express your athletic version on a daily basis and for most of you listening that athletic version is an endurance athletic version i believe that with consistency and a commitment and a good mindset and a good belief in ourselves and an inner landscape that we feel good about because we're bringing out the best version of ourselves when we're athletes um, that it can be done and so simply put it's it's part of our best current version of ourselves. And so a healthy in body grows to healthy in mind and soul. And that radiates outwards and making all of us, uh, all of those around us feel your health, joy and happiness as well, which then just promotes more and more of this endurance and fitness and health and wellness mindset approach and lifestyle. But before we go much further, I want to do what I've done Uh, maybe on the podcast once before, but is read you this passage of the book I am still reading, Running and Being, The Total Experience by Dr. George Sheehan. And you might be wondering, Chris, how long are you going to read this book? Well, the challenge with this book is because each page and each paragraph and each chapter is so profound and deep with what it means and how it resonates with me that I can't read much at a time without stopping and wanting to sort of absorb it even deeper and take a deeper look at it and um, make those words part of me and my life. And it's very similar, hopefully, for many of you that have read, whether it's um, Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or even the Bible or things that are very powerful, profound, moving, um, transcendental, Um, anyway, um, and so therefore I am struggling to read this as just another book to, to plow through, but I'm really reading it a couple pages at a time to really allow it to sink in. And I keep coming across passages that I want to share because I think they capture it so well of all the things we talk about on this podcast, but 
just go out and get the book and read it. And then that way you know exactly what I mean. But here to read this passage, um, I thought I'd share with you. A daily runner has written to me in frustration because medical science has failed to come up with conclusive proof that running will prevent heart disease. Why run, he asks, if there is not definitive evidence that running will thwart a heart attack? The answer, it seems to me, is that we should do so for more important and urgent and compelling reasons. We run, play tennis, cycle, swim, hike, hunt, ride horses, or whatever, because they have to do with the quality of our lives rather than the quantity. I know only two things, a student said to Rollo May. One, I will be dead someday. Two, I am not dead now. The only question is what I shall do between those two points. Sport and play and exercise are essential to that doing, that being, that becoming. They are concerned with physiology, not disease, with health, not heart attacks, with fitness, not the lessening of hypertension, strokes, or other human ills. Sport and play and exercise, therefore, are therefore vital to the process of maximizing ourselves and reaching the top of our physical powers. We should not underestimate the importance of this in the full life. Training the body was an essential part of Plato's prescription for education. Education, he said, should train the body and mind as one. Only then can the body, which is the source of energy and initiative, be put in harmony with the mind, which is reason. The body, wrote Ortega, is the tutor and the policeman of the spirit. It is the fit body, the body at the height of its powers, the body with range and daring matched with maturity that is the best teacher, the best disciplinarian. Running, or whatever our sport is, then is the way we move from actuality toward our potential, toward becoming all we can be. At the same time, it will fill us with uneasiness, with what Gabriel Marcel called inquietude, the recognition that there is work to be done to fulfill our lives. And it allows us to see, as Theodore Rojak suggested, that our most solemn and pressing and primary problem is not original sin, but original splendor, knowledge of our own potential godlikeness. We grow sick, Rojak wrote, with the guilt of having lived below our authentic level. That's how I wanted to open this week's podcast because again, living our most authentic life to me includes our athletic life. And in order to be the best version of ourselves, the best current version of ourselves, I feel that the athletic version of that bigger version pays a vital, plays a vital role. And when we suppress that, when we ignore that, there's a component, a piece, a percentage of ourself missing. And it's hard to make that up in the other aspects of that best version of ourselves when we have a large percentage 
a significant percentage of that being suppressed, not coming forward, not being allowed to express itself. And that's what endurance and the ultra endurance lifestyle offers us the ability to add that best athletic self to our daily lives. Once again, we have so many questions to go through on the podcast with email questions I've received and um, some Twitter questions I've received, as well as two main concepts to talk about today. One is the final stages of the 50K training plan. Um, I think the way I wrote it down, and I know it's somewhat confusing for some people with regards to the recovery week, and some are taking a full recovery week, and some are just taking a few days, and so it's either 16 or 17 weeks in, and um, I will give you the last four to five weeks here, along with the taper week, to sort of give you a big picture idea. Now, with any training plan, keep in mind, you know, you might need to adjust it, adapt it, um, absorb it according to how you can, as well as your life schedule, work, family, travel, um, other commitments. And so that's why I try to talk a lot about high-level concepts on here, but and not necessarily on Tuesday, do this, on Wednesday, do this. It, that gets too um, limiting on how you can apply those concepts and those stimulations, adaptations we're looking for in the training, to your process of achieving a 50K successfully. So, and you know, just today I had an athlete email me regarding her 50K training and she's uh, five and a half weeks out, six weeks out. You know, and her she's got some hip issues and her body's bothering her. And yes, I wrote her back, let's not overthink this. Let's not worry too much about it. Let's take a couple of days. Because the important thing on all this ultra endurance training for any of us, whether you're climbing Kilimanjaro or Everest or, you know, uh, 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 some sort of 20 th- plus thousand feet peak to running your first 50K, 50 miler, 100 miler. I had a call earlier today to somebody who wasn't able to run his 50 miler um, to doing your first Ironman or doing an Ultraman or doing some sort of self curated adventure. Keep in mind, the big picture is we're masters athletes. We no longer have the time to train like the younger version of ourselves. So with that overarching theme, also keep in mind, as you're training, you've built up some serious volume here. You've built up some serious time over the last 6, 8, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, 4 months, 6 months. And if you compare that in, in, in a big picture, in a diagram to the last five, six, seven years, if you have not been continuously, consistently doing these type of builds, this is a lot on your body. It's a lot to suddenly, it is technically suddenly, although you took six months to build it, it is still suddenly compared to the 10 year window, right? That axis um, of volume increase, it looks like a mountain shooting up all of a sudden, all this running, all this training, all this pounding on the body, all this hiking, all this strength work, all this these step-ups and stuff. If you're doing any type of mountain climbing, I have a lot of my athletes doing a ton of step-ups, loaded step-ups. Well, if you didn't do that over the last five, six, seven years, and you've entered into this type of training, your body is, body is constantly not under stress, but in confusion. And confusion does create some stress. Um, of 
the pattern and what we're doing and trying to recover from it and trying to optimize for it and trying to find homeostasis and trying to get better at the motion and trying to recover quicker and trying to anticipate the next time you're doing that strength work in order to recover quicker, in order for the soreness to go away. Same thing for this running and so forth. And so when you're doing the training and you're getting these niggles or injuries, it's fine. It's fine because we've done consistent work over 12, 14, 16 weeks to take a few days and allow the body just to say, well, okay, I get a moment to exhale here. Let me focus on rebuilding myself. Let me focus on switching from confusion and duress and stress and inputs to rebuilding myself, re-energizing myself, resetting myself. And yes, she had a pretty big weekend ahead of a simulation, basically a 50K in 25 hours, 26 hours, because we're doing it one morning and then another 10 miles as early as possible the next morning before the start time of the previous day's start time, right? You guys know my concept from the 50K training plan. But it's going to be fine next weekend. We'll build in more recovery around it. We'll set the plan around it. And I told her also, this is what coaching is. Anybody can train when they stay healthy and they're feeling great and they have the time and they're balancing it all and their body's absorbing it. Again, those are all easy um, scenarios and plans to gradually execute. And sure, most of you are doing it consistently and getting the sleep and taking care of your body and fueling and rebuilding and regenerating and eating the proper foods and hydrating in order to ensure that you have that continual growth. But um, there will be times where we, we will need to break that pattern and the body will rebuild itself and reset itself. And coaching is about helping you figure that part out because otherwise, the book, the training plan online is plenty in the magazine. But now coaching comes to play. This is coaching. Helping her navigate. I have this niggle. I have this, not injury, because injury sounds more long-term. I have something that's bothering me. I feel like I should rest it. Well, we will. Let's rest it. Let's calm it down. Let's observe and let's stay and navigate through this cycle, this phase of the training in order to still set you up for something successful in five and a half to six weeks. I'm not worried about it. She's done a great amount of volume and work and consistency. Her charts with regards to volume and the gradual build and health look great. So this I'm pretty confident on is going to be a short um, reset button. It's totally good. And my other athlete earlier that I talked to today, he got sick, but we also had a very clear and candid discussion around his fog of fatigue he was in and his lack of communication over the last four or five months in his training, in his prep for a 50 miler for 10 to 12 to 13 hour run on a very hard Lake Sonoma 50 miler course that Without that communication, he was probably underfueling, underhydrating, not eating enough during the day, and just he was silent, not telling me how he was feeling, not able to, to communicate how he felt after the follow-up speed work from a long run day, how the simulation weekends work, what he was observing, when he got hungry, how he was sleeping, how he was uh, cranky or not, how he was with his family, how he was uh, staying awake during the day, how exhausted he was after workouts, how 
just all those things are part of the bigger picture. And that's also coaching and coaching and being a teacher and being an educator and being a, um, a, a, a advocate all requires that you have these inputs in order to take those into account to give the best of yourself, coach, educator, teacher, whatever, to the pupil. In order for me to give you all the knowledge I can to help you with as many tidbits as I can in the training, I need to know that data from you. Otherwise, it's very general. And general is good up to a certain point, right? But general doesn't help you when you need different types of training, when you're injured, when you have business travel, when you have family commitments and needs and you can't get that. General doesn't help you. That's where we navigate and where you're questioning yourself or what to do, where we can avoid pitfalls and mistakes. Sure, we do need to make some um, mistakes and we learn well from those. But the, the old adage is, right, that the fool doesn't learn from his mistakes. The smart man, the smart person, um, learns from their mistakes, yes. But the wise man learns from the mistakes of others, observes others making the mistakes and avoids making those and doesn't necessarily keep saying, I have to fail in order to find out. No, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in the failures of others. And especially in this endurance field for so many, there's so many of us who have been down those paths of trial and error. In the early years when ultra endurance was sort of just sort of beginning and all this was undiscovered and the triathlon world and the going along world that I was lucky to be directly connected to, maybe on the back end of truly experimenting, but I trained with those that did actually truly experiment, that pushed things beyond the limits. The Scott Molinas, the Gordo Burns, the Wendy Ingrams, the Mark Allens, right, that who really just sort of messed with it, the Dave Scotts. I had the lucky um, and fortunate scenarios, the Wolfgang Dietrichs in swimming, to sort of to train with them and have them tell me, like, you don't want to make that mistake. That was just stupid. We shouldn't have trained like that. Now we know this. And so I was able to apply this not the mistakes, but the new this that they knew, and then continue to refine that and grow that. That's the only reason I'm here with regards to 20 years of knowledge in this. You know, I would say more than 10,000 hours because that's about as much as I train in a year. Well, no, that's obviously completely exaggerated, but I have my 10,000 hours in the sport of coaching and of applying, of training, of coaching in swimming, of coaching in triathlon, of coaching in ultra endurance athletes, and now in coaching into the full on spectrum of all endurance endeavors, right? But that's what we wanna do, avoid the mistakes. So that's what coaching is. And that's what we're here to re recognize as we're doing this training. We're on a pretty big growth phase and there's gonna be times where our body's gonna say, stop. I need to reset. We can continue to go, but give me just a day or two or three or a recovery week or an off week before I go again. I'll give you all that, but give me something. Let me reset. And so we want to be able to learn for that. And that, so that's why um, 
we're in this space with regards to the 50K training plan. And then the other big topic will be lactate threshold test. A lot of you have gotten five or six tests in the meantime, have sent me some um, good lactate threshold tests and want me to sort of answer some questions and, and meaning behind that. And I will dive into that. That is a bigger topic. And so it might not be um, something we will get to on one podcast. So I might designate a, a podcast completely to the lactate threshold aspect because the exercise physiology, the concepts, and not necessarily the exercise physiology, I won't go too detailed with regards to um, scientific or um, um, expertise talk. Um, not that I am either. Don't get me wrong. I am not the expert on this, but I've been around it enough and seen an plenty of thousands of tests and seen them being performed and distributed and worked with with cycling teams and pro cycling teams and pro triathletes and exercise labs and different coaches and um, all around the world in the meantime that um, I seem to feel pretty confident that I can work through it pretty well. But anyway, it's a longer topic that I would like to give you the full picture on. So maybe we'll get a chance to get to that today. But yeah, um, so some questions that have come up, um, let's dive right into some of the most recent ones. <clears throat> so this one is one for the, tra <clears throat> excuse me, um, is for the, um, lactate threshold test. Another one is you're asking for 70.3 training plans. As soon as I f finish the 50 K training plan, I will jump into a 70.3 training plan as I discussed, um, I also have another zone question, um, and that's with regards to blood lactate, so I'm not going to discuss that one today. I got a one the other day that's pretty interesting, and that's, um, my question is um, on a podcast between Rich and I, um, so it must have been on Rich's podcast. Chris sparked my interest when he mentions staying six weeks away from any endurance event. I was really interested because I suffer from post-ultra race lazy ass training syndrome. I'm a runner that needs a plan and can't find an in-between ultra marathon plan. There's a reason for that. Sure, there are hundreds of race training plans online, but nothing that helps between events. So in this case, um, Ryan, um, there's a reason for the lack of uh, data out there and training plans out there post um, an endurance event is because everything that we know points towards our understanding that we need to take rest. And that uncomfort, that letting go of fitness, that um, wanting to get out training again and reconnect with what made us feel so alive is exactly the challenge. But again, that's what makes you an athlete. Um, that makes means you're an athlete versus just somebody who exercises. And your ability to be patient and rest and allow your body to absorb what it just did, recover from it in order to come back stronger is very important. Now, sometimes we do have multiple events on the schedule that require um, diligent training in between. Let's say you have a 50 miler in May and you have another 50 miler in early July. Well, now you're six weeks apart, like Ryan was talking about here. 
Now, of course, you want to set expectations of the desired outcome for each one of those so that you don't finish one thinking you're just going to PR the next one or continue to get better. You should know um, early in the season, well, I signed up for these two with the proper intention. The first one as a training day, the second one to peak at, or the second one um, as a way as a backup for peaking for the one in May. It is very important to have that perspective because if you don't, you end up um, not putting forth your best effort and you're displaying your best ability and fitness. You want a desired outcome, a clarity and intention for two long races like that. In most cases, I would say one's a training day, one's a peak. And so if the previous one is a training day, well, then your ability and how you race it, how you recover from it, how you go into the training, into the last week of training for it, as well as how you kick out will be different because you're looking to still peak at the next one. If your training has gone well, you might even do close to your best or maybe your best result in the training one, but then you have to be very good about sticking to the original goals of the peak and what that time or range of outcome or placing, that it stays the same. Don't just modify because you had a great training race, because then if you set the expectations too high, you're back to square one of, ugh, you'll be disappointed that you didn't hit the new goal and expectations. Whereas if you finish the second race, you download, you exhale, you take a few days off or a week off and sort of really reflect, man, I set the training day outcome and exceeded that. And I hit my goals and the far end of um, positive performance at my peak race. Man, that was a great build, a great outcome and anything I could have asked for when I started the program or the plan or the intention or the training for this four months ago, six months ago, whatever, you always want to be able to dial back to what was my intention when I started. And now that I've completed the full cycle, how do I feel about having achieved that? And that's an important aspect to keep in mind. So in returning to that question, um, sure, there are hundreds of training race training plans online, but nothing that helps between events. In between events is a very custom individual uh, process in order to fully absorb the, the, the race, the stress, the overload, the experience that you just had in the event, and then how you personally can rebuild optimally to quickly get back onto absorbing a training growth a training load, right? It's one thing to return to training after a big endurance event endeavor, but it's you want to grow upon that. You want to build upon that layer and get fitter from it. And there is um, a huge fitness effect of a race, especially of a training day, um, training race. But if not, the, if not done properly and individually to you, um, then it can just turn into more of the fog of fatigue, that you're in this zone, in this gray zone, that you're not really getting better. You just feel good about doing the volume and therefore that justifying or making you feel more confident that you continue to um, have the fitness to complete the event, but not necessarily better.
And how is it customizable and individual to you? Well, we have to know what your past recovery looks like, how you responded in simulations and training to the training volume load, overload, um, big training days that we can then see, okay, he or she bounces back, you know, sort of within five days of rest and a couple days easy that we can actually ask for a performance, a training stimulus, and it gets absorbed. There is some growth there. There is some freshness there. There is the commentary by the athlete, huh, I feel pretty good. So um, it's not really an answer to the question, but more an understanding around it. And when I talked about that on Rich's podcast, staying six weeks away from any endurance event, that's a basic layer of fitness I talk about that I want most athletes at a high level to have, that you are consistently fit enough to take on an endurance adventure within six to eight weeks, that you say, I have a good strength and chassis platform and a fitness platform that if I apply myself into this direction for the next six weeks, I'll feel pretty good about doing the event. I'm not talking about winning. I'm not talking about your best performance. I'm not talking about ease exceeding any expectations. It's more for the experienced endurance athlete to know that they can go and play and do it and feel good about their fitness and performance. Because remember, if you're six weeks away, you have a big level of fitness anyway. So now it's more about specializing into that direction and feeling good and strong and prepared and connected to putting forth a pretty good performance. I hope that helps Ryan in Santa Cruz, California. Great spot. Anyone can train and do almost any type of endurance event when they have unlimited time to train, when they have little responsibilities or work or family pressures that demand their time. Anyone. But the challenge for this ultra-endurance lifestyle is exactly that because we are busy, because it is hard to manage it all, because we went pro in something other than sports. And it's in that space, because it's so difficult, that it becomes uncertain, that it becomes an adventure, that it becomes something on the far edge of what we thought was possible, given our busy lifestyle, given our demands on our time. And of course, the expectations need to be adjusted because you don't have unlimited time. You are not that person. But that's that detachment. That's that lack of judging ourselves on who we once were when we had a lot of time and we think we want to be that person again. But that's just not a reality. And instead of backing away from the challenge, backing away from an ultra endurance adventure, backing away from a race or a distance or um, uh, an activity that you don't think is realistic, push yourself beyond the margins, push yourself into the uncertainty. And it's because when we do things that we know the outcome, where we know we can manage it, where we know we can um, complete the task, the adventure, the activity, the race, it will not demand all our attention. 
It will not demand the best version of ourselves. It will not come with that uncertainty, fear, curiosity, heightened awareness. Um, and with that, below that, motivation and the willingness to commit and just the fear of the unknown. And like we've often all heard, often all heard, is you'd rather live in the highs and lows than in things that you can control. I'd rather go from emotions of deep down depressed to the greatest feelings in the world and feeling so accomplished than just always being a six or a seven. And everything in my life controlled, manageable, knowing the outcome, repetitive. Give me life outside the margins. Give me adventures where I don't know the outcome. Give me failures where I hit the ground and I have just failed. I have DNF'd. I have not figured it out. I have felt that, uh, that heavy heart of and, and that, that personal um, disappointment of not finishing or even um, finishing but way below what I know I'm honestly capable of. Give me that because then I know my next event, my next training phase, my next adventure will be super focused. And not putting sacrifices on the other responsibilities because of the difficulty of our lives and our schedules to be outside the margins on the big side, on the good side, to feel that again. And then fail again at something. But push me to the outer sides of that bubble. I don't want to be in the bubble. I want to be on the other side of the bubble. I want to live. I want to be alive. And being alive is not being in the margins. Being alive to me, and all this is my opinion, being alive to me is living outside those margins. Going where many have not gone before, whether it's in endurance adventures or expeditions or curating your own experiences or also the failures of it and the daily failures of it of not being able to perform, of not being able to execute the training because I'm fatigued, because I'm tired, because I have to figure out now what is it I'm doing? What, what, where did I get stuck? How do I figure this out? How do I get back to the other side of the margin, of the bubble? I'm on the wrong side. Do I need a couple of days of rest? Do I need to modify my training? What is it do I, that I need? But yes, Yes, because life is busy, because we have other responsibilities, because the schedule is challenging, that's what makes the adventure. That's what makes it unique that you are doing an endurance activity, adventure, event, race, whatever we want to call it, despite that busy lifestyle. And that you're getting in the training somehow, despite all the naysayers and the doubts and can you and your own. And what I meant before by judging ourselves, don't evaluate yourself and judge yourself and carry that with you because of what you might have been in the past, whether it's an athlete or not able to, 
or what you might have been in the past with regards to time and how much you wanted to apply for, uh, apply yourself to this type of endeavor. And now you actually have the, whether it's the financial means or the t uh, physical means or the time means that you didn't have in the past that now you want to apply yourself. That's the past. Instead, we want to focus on the best current athletic version of ourselves. And the best current athletic version of ourselves might only come forward in a different way than it could have been in its 20s, of course, or, or you know, when we had more time, or it is in your 40s. It all doesn't matter how old you are. It's more important to not look back and think what you could have been, but instead what you can be now what you can be now. I've dreamed, I talked this morning to my son about it, of how I would, I love baseball. I absolutely love baseball. I love the sport of baseball. I know that seems completely ironic <laughs> because here I am, an ultra endurance athlete and a swimmer and a um, always active and baseball is the exact opposite of that, right? Lots of standing around, lots of strategy, lots of thinking, lots of um, attention to detail. But I also love that part of it, the repetition, the training. The training is way more the repetitive training and the drills and the, and the need for self-awareness and how you're doing the activity of baseball and swinging a bat and making plays and where to be and what the next play is and where the ball gets thrown to and the cutoff man and the numbers and how to shift and how to pull the infield in and how to back up and how to give up a run and infield fly rule. There's so much in baseball. It's a think it's a lot of thinking. And I like that. And again, it's con it's contrary to what I do <laughs> in endurance sports. But the reason I bring it up is I often think here uh, approaching 50 in a few months that man, I would have loved to take this knowledge and physical ability. It's just in a world that I didn't grow up in in Europe, and I would have loved to have been a baseball player. That would have been super interesting to me. I don't know what that would have meant if I would have been a terrible baseball player. I probably would have. But anyway, what I'm comparing it to is thinking back and wondering. And if, and I wonder if, I wonder what that would have been and could have been. No, that is all in the past. And instead, I want to be the best athletic version of my current self with the history of swimming and triathlon in my body and in my bones and in my mind and in my soul and move forward on adventures and curiosity and things that I haven't done. Alaska Man is an adventure that, that I haven't done. Will I be able to figure it out? I'm pretty confident I will. Is it sort of in the controlled means of what I'm familiar with? Yes. Is it within the margins? Yes. So what is it, Chris? But it is outside the margins of what I've done in the past, of what I need to figure out. It puts some factors together that I've never put together. One being swimming in cold water, which I personally abhor, and that will be difficult for me outside the margins. The bike ride doesn't look that difficult to me inside the margins, but then running a trail run 26, 28 miles with a lot of elevation gain and putting a true trail ultra into an iron distance, that is new to me. 
and that is on the outside of the margins. And, and then also wanting to push it and see how the fitness can carry for eight to 10 to 12 hours as a 50 year old when to push through an event like that on the front end of the field. Yes, that is intriguing. That is curious. That is uncertain to me. There are calculations and people and parts of this event that I have not figured out yet. And not that I'm going to, because I'm going to have to do it to figure it out. But because of the past finishing times and the, the newness of the event, something seems off to me, off being in the results and the numbers. So there's more below the surface than just the results and the times that makes this race harder. And again, there's that uncertainty. There's that curiosity. Hmm, what am I missing? I guess I'll find out. How do I overcome that uncertainty, curiosity, unknown, unfamiliar, unfamiliarity, that in outside the margins piece? By having outstanding fitness to then deal with the uncertainties and the unplanned things of that day. But yeah, I, I constantly, constantly or frequently, and not constantly, but frequently read of athletes and commentaries and inquiries by other athletes communicating with me about how ah, I'm not sure if I should do this. And I'm always saying to them, do it. Find out on what is what you deemed was not possible. Remember this whole concept to do something on the far edge, on the outer boundaries of what you deemed was possible and applying it in a systematic, sustainable, healthy way. The systematic and sustainable is on us, the athlete, to execute the training in a healthy, sustainable, repeatable, growing, progressing, getting fitter way. But the choice of the event is on the outside of what we deemed was possible. That puts us into the curiosity zone. That puts us on the far edge of what we thought we could do to create a new normal. That is fun. That makes you feel alive. That puts you on the outside of the margins. That puts you either at a nine or a 10 on it going amazing and it feeling amazing and it was so worthwhile or at a one or a two where you might crash and burn. But that's living. That's truly living on the, the, the outer numbers of the boundary. So here we are on our final stage of the 50K training plan, training schedule, and approach. And as you all know from my coaching and what I talk a lot about on this podcast is these are just guidelines. This is a skeletal structure of how you might want to go about planning, planning your training. It's not designed to be followed to a T, but mainly to formulate some ideas that you then implement those concepts in your week, in your macro training cycles. Macro training cycles being three, four weeks at a time. Um, or you could also define macro training cycles in build, you know, base, peak, um, and um, rest or uh, taper, right? So we've gone through most of those 
concepts of the first few weeks as we're building up the volume and building up the body and getting it ready for the pounding and the mileage of trails and running ahead. We've been at the big weeks where we've maximized the volume but limited the um, burden of intensity and stress um, on the body because we know the volume is creating the fatigue. And now we're on our way back down. We're in those final weeks. And what the caveat too here is, is to understand that because you might have recovery weeks or days in there, your timing might be off. Because you might have done a half marathon trail race in between, your timing might be off. And in many cases, that also means, well, you took a recovery week or a couple of days easy leading into that trail, half marathon trail half marathon trail race or event and then you took a couple days easy and then jump back on the, the plan that I've been laying out but either way as you string together these podcasts and how you're planning your training for a 50k a 31 to 32 mile race um, you want to be able to look at it as a flexible 20 to 24 even 30 week build up because there is nothing better in endurance and ultra endurance training than time. Time to allow the body to absorb the work. Time to allow the body to adapt to what it's doing. Time to let the niggles and the stress and the pounding and the hurt, quite honestly, the soreness, the achiness of the work to sort of settle in and allow it to dissipate before you put on the next load. Time to build up the leg turnover and the intensity, the limited intensity we do in this type of training to gradually build that by minutes versus by quickly jumping by half an hour or too much intensity and stress at once. Time to set our reality and our expectations for future training and for future events. The big issue in endurance training and ultra endurance training for so many athletes is on the one hand the front end is looks reasonable doable but then repeating volume weeks many weeks in a row that's where the toll is that's where the strain on our body on our mind with regards to motivation and psychology the strain on our family and work and time available in the general day-to-day the strain on our weekends and lack of recovery and lack of um, getting things done that we usually push off. Everything becomes more um, compact. Time shrinks because now the things that you usually get done in a relaxed manner outside of training, work, and family are now limited. They're very small windows of time because you filled the relaxing time, not relaxing physically, but relaxing pace time where you do things on the weekends or chores or house activities or family activities or personal activities or personal interests or watching TV. You've filled all that time with training. 
And so as many of you might be nodding your head right now, the part of endurance training is that then all those things seem to crop up and um, create a stress and a burden on us like, ugh, I can't do that or ugh, I miss that or man, I have so many things to do. When's my rest day? Well, then that rest day comes and we have a chore list or a task list or a to-do list of like 30 items. We're not going to finish that. And this all builds up and it creates our own stresses and load and demotivating mindset and factors. And so keep that in mind. It's one thing to do a big week here and there, but in ultra endurance training to do repetitive many weeks, that's the big space. That's the big challenge. That's what um, allows you, the athlete, to have the success and the fitness and the mental fortitude and the confidence down the road because you were able to get those in. And when you're not able to get them in, that's where you also get a sense of, wow, this is what ultra endurance training is like. It's not just a week here or there. It's a lot of these weeks. And whether it's Ironman triathletes, it's Ultraman triathletes, whether it's ultra runners, ultra swimmers, or self-curated longer adventures or hikes or climbers, it's, it's not the event itself, which is a day or two or three or five or 10 here or there, like once a year. So that we can schedule around. And it's not the beginnings of it. It's the big weeks when we're in it that really create not only the physical platform, that's the price. That's the resilience. That's where the grind and the work pays off. The fact that you got in six, seven, eight weeks in a row of big work, of big volume. And of course, in a row, it sounds like we didn't have a recovery week or anything like that. But you know what I mean with regards to six to eight weeks of work and where life and the schedule and the fatigue and the other um, priorities fall off and it just becomes a lot. I have athletes every week that I challenge because they're not able to get in this type of volume, the six hour bike rides, the seven hour runs on a Saturday, you know, the, you know, the three, four hours on a Friday followed by three, four hours on a Saturday followed by three, four hours on a Sunday in order to string together volume with limited rest. The overall accumulation of this stuff, that becomes the challenge. And yes, I've learned over the years how to uh, manipulate and affect training well enough that even with shorter workouts, we can have somewhat of that effect. But the longer we go in distances, and I'm not talking 50K now, but more the 50 mile, 100K, 100 mile events, the Ultraman events, the ultra long distance multi-day adventure events, there is no way around the work and the grind and the overload of that. And it becomes a challenge. It really does. And it also questions or it makes our confidence brittle because we sit there and wonder, if I can't get that in, can I do this? And then it becomes that expectations conversation that we have talked about plenty on here. So back to the 50K plan, we're in the back end of that. But just to recap that whole thing, I wanted to tie it all together on what it all means when you put it all together. That's how it should unfold. It should and feel and observe that type of 
Um, wow, many weeks of this was a totally different experience than just one or two big weeks. And I would say in most training plans for athletes, when you get it off the internet or off of a magazine or a book, I would say that's where the difference mainly lies, is that the general plan for the populace is designed that you you know, get in and you participate and you finish and you get in those one or two big weeks, but not the consistent big weeks. But then when you come off of that, like I'm about to talk about, you will feel quite strong and connected and powerful. And so here we are, just to recap on the true aspect of the training plan. We know, based off of what we've done in the first hmm, two sections, three sections of this, um, now that we know we can do the distance, high level, we've done the volume, We've done the distance in a short window of 24 hours, right? We said late afternoon, early morning, and then that afternoon again, or um, long run on Saturday in the midday, followed by a, a run on Sunday early morning, so that within 24 hours, we basically got the distance or more done. So we know we can do the distance once we're rested and fresh. But now this last phase of training is about doing it better faster, stronger, more confident, connected. And so we felt the max volume and fitness. We've done the sim weekends. We've done the big volume, but now, and we've kept the focus during the week, right? Big weekends, maintaining running during the week. We've done the max volume. And I think we even had a simulation. Yes, we did have a simulation. So the beauty is where we were, the 12 to 16 or 17 weeks was, the long run was four hours, a sim weekend, four hours, and a six-hour run. You're doing a six-hour run on a long run, you're pretty close to the volume or the time that it takes to do a 50K. Leg speed work was bounding and turnover. The easy and active recovery run was a little less in volume um, because of the big volume weeks. The post-long run um, workout was speed and even some rucking where we were hiking and getting ready and getting the body ready on tired legs to hike steep hills. The changing speed work was longer tempo runs and shorter zone two recovery. And then we also added some strength and core. We were at max. And then we cross-trained a little bit with cycling, swim, yoga, and things like that. That's what we did do. And where are we going now? Well, our entire concepts now are better, stronger, faster in everything we do. But in order to do better, stronger, faster, we can't continue to increase the volume. Now we need to either stay at that volume, recover better from it and do it better, stronger, faster, or slightly decrease it. We're still going to have another sim weekend, which I would recommend is right here off the start. We're going to do a little bit less volume, but faster. We're going to do stronger with same or less um, rest. So that's the beauty. Before, we were at, um, I would say, 12 to 16 hours. Now, we're more like, uh, I think we're probably lower than that. We're probably about 10 to 13 hours. So where are we going to dive into? So let's first go backwards and build on the 17 to 20 weeks phase plus the race. I'm also going to throw in the taper. 
Um, and let's build backwards. So about 17 weeks. Now you're coming out of the recovery week. You might have even done an endurance week, which is fine. Totally fine. But make sure that before we start this final phase, you had that recovery week. So maybe you went from the last week of training, that six, um, into an endurance week. And remember, to recap, endurance weeks are low heart rate, steady, big volume. Not all at once, but just every day. Every day, meaning, and this could be done in triathlon, this can be done in all the sports. You back off of any intensity and you increase the constant um, movement and application and recruitment and stimulation of aerobic zone two activity. So that means Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, doing something steady, morning and evening, maybe even if you have time, or at least 90 minutes a day, I would say, if you're doing ultra running, of just steady zone two stuff. Even if you're doing 45 minutes low heart rate in the morning, an hour in the evening, or flip that, right? And then the long runs on the weekends would be for an endurance week. I'm still talking endurance week here. Let's say three hours in the morning, all easy, come back home, recover, eat, hydrate, and then maybe another 90 minutes in the afternoon. Then the next morning, Sunday, another 90 minutes, sort of before breakfast, come back, eat, recover, hydrate, and maybe another 90 or two hours. So multiple workouts, max volume. Oftentimes, endurance weeks um, increase the volume by 20 to 25%. I do this for ultraman um, athletes. I do this for um, the big endurance adventure athletes. Where we increase the volume suddenly, not suddenly, but they know it's coming. Is That's what I mean by not suddenly. Um, um, and but we it comes sort of at the end of a training phase. We throw in an endurance week, but what the reason it works for many athletes, for some I can't do it because they're too fatigued off of the stimulus of the original build anyway. But for some athletes, it works great because we back out of any type of effort, any type of intensity, and their go all day pace settles in very nicely. With Ironman triathletes, I do what's called a big run week. And it's a very similar concept that back off the intensity all week on all the other activities, swim and bike, and the run, of course. But while they're doing their swim and bike stuff, I also increase their running load quite dramatically. I think we have a total of four two-hour runs in a regular triathlon week, which means they're running eight hours plus another probably eight hours of cycling and another three-ish hours of um, swimming. So that's a 20-hour training week when you throw in a few minutes here and there. But I would say almost uh, 50%, you know, 45% is running. And what they all find, and also in this endurance running aspect, is that they say, wow, I thought I'd be tired. And of course, I'm sleepy tired, but my legs just clicked into a certain speed. And they just held that, whether it was on a Monday, a Wednesday, a Saturday morning, a Sunday afternoon, it always settled into the same speed. And what I often say, especially to the Ironman triathletes and those going longer, I say that Right there, you can start applying that as your untired legs go all day run pace. So in the marathon of an Ironman, they can start using that number of no matter how tired I am, 
no matter how fatigued I am from the 2.4 mile swim and the 112 mile bike, at some point, I'll still fall back to that speed. And so, of course, there's some fresher spots early on in the bike, in the run of the uh, triathlon that they'll be a bit faster than that. But they always know, but man, I will, I know I'll fall back to at least that if I stay fueled and if I stay hydrated and all that. But it's a good place to be to know that your go all day pace is X and that you've noticed over the seasons or over the training of that season that that go all day pace X has gotten faster. So that's a nice confidence boost as well. So back to our 50K plan, we are now through that endurance week. We've had some recovery days. So I would go right into our last simulation in week 17-ish here. And that simulation should, again, be an outstanding prep of what you want to do. The dinner you want to have or you think you'll be having at the, on race weekend. Sleep the same time you're going to bed, the whole concept and everything. Wake up at the same time that you plan for the race. The same breakfast at the same timing you have for the race. Fuel and hydration prep for the race and for during the day for the simulation. Um, you want to also you want to go about 24 to 25 miles on this last simulation. So about 80% of the distance you will be racing. A lot of uh, uh, concepts around coaching for endurance, maybe even in swimming in general too. I'm not sure about the other stuff. I'd have to look into it more. But a lot of the concepts around endurance is if you can do 80-ish, 85% of the race distance, and many of you know this from the podcast that I do this with a lot of the Ultraman guys, is then fresh, rested, and properly um fueled as well as with your mind fresh the the hundred percent of the distance will feel very uh, capable controlled and familiar and that's basically what we want in a sim but this simulation again dinner sleep brekkie fuel hydration for the race everything for that 24 to 25 miler we want to nail that on this last simulation and then the next day we want the same time that we have been doing rucking, meaning backpack, with about 10 to 15 pounds early in the morning with limited recovery time. Now, because you're coming off of a recovery week and because you've gotten this fitness, we want that next morning of rucking, hiking with a backpack over rolling terrain with 10 to 15 pounds to be a little bit faster, more um focused and more intentional that's the word i was looking for intentional to go somewhat stronger faster better and it doesn't need to be long um i would say you know 90 to two hours or what you have done in the past simulations with rocking but doing it better stronger faster smarter and feeling more connected and more fit and powerful because of it and so now we're into our regular weeks uh, during this, this last phase. So our long run is going to be sim five, four, three hours. Our leg speed was that bending and bounding and turnover. Now we're going to do shorter hill repeats. I would say those hills we're looking at... Um, 
90 seconds and then decreasing, but you could also do 60 second hill repeats. But what I would do is start the first week, the week 17, of 16 times one minute explosive. I mean, explosive, powerful, strong minute uphills um, with obviously whatever time to recover, walk back down, take a moment, take a breather. A moment, a breather isn't two minutes. It means 10, 15 seconds, and then off you go. Explode back up that hill. And in that hill repeat run, I would also always finish it off with two miles at race pace feel. Now, it's a trail race. We don't know what pacing really is because the terrain is rolling or uphill and so forth. And so overall race, but you just want to settle into what you think is a realistic go all day pace. So that would be the hill repeats for the week. That's the leg speed work. The easy recovery week, uh, uh, easy recovery run, active recovery run is gone this week in these last few weeks. There's no reason to add that running for active recovery or on tired legs. Just recover, just sleep, or don't stay off your legs that day. Now, we have that other workout, the post long run. It was speed and rucking, but now we're changing that to a 10K, you know. Um, so we want that, uh, I would say 10 K so that sim weekend, we're doing the rocking after, right? But then week seven, 18, we're going to go five hours, like we said, for the long run, but then we're going to follow that up with a 10 K fast effort. Then week, uh, 19 will be a four hour run. We said for the long run, still follow that up with a fast 10 K. And then finally, the post-long run on week 20, I guess that would be, is just a three-hour run that weekend, that long run. No follow-up with speed. I would actually take that Sunday off um, and sleep and recover and rest. Uh, so then, so those are our, that. Now, now we've gone through the long runs. We've gone through the leg speed, which is hill repeats. We've gone through the easy activity, act, active recovery runs on, um, that we're getting rid of those. We're doing the post long run speed, right? Now we're on the changing speed workout. We were at a longer tempo run with shorter zone two recovery. Now we're gonna keep the tempo run, but we're not gonna make it longer. We're gonna keep it steady at let's say 15 minute intervals, right? 15 minutes of, or maybe up to 20 minutes, depending on how advanced the athlete is with regards to their fitness, but 15 minutes at let's say zone three or tempo, or what I would describe as an uncomfortable but sustainable effort, and then five-ish to seven, even eight minutes of zone two recovery. Um, so still still changing speeds but less taxing and more recovery and just feeling good so we have the endurance we have the strength we have the power we have the simulations in us so now it's just about fine-tuning and feeling better those are the runs that we want to come out of going man i'm starting to feel fit the five-hour run, the four-hour run will still be fatiguing. I mean, it's still four hours of running. So either way, it's not going to have us feeling like fit. 
but the changing speed, how long you're holding tempo and how easily you settle into zone three and tempo and um, uncomfortable speed and how you recover from it and how you stay connected while you're running that, that's where you start feeling, hmm, I don't feel that bad. I feel pretty good actually. And then we have uh, strength work um, and core. We were at max. I would pull back if you're doing strength and depending on the strength you're doing to about 85%. So if you were doing a max, let's say squats or um, a certain type of leg work, I would only go up to 85% of that, whatever that max was. Clean, connected, powerful. And the cross training aspect, you know, I would... uh, I would actually stay away from it all these last four or five weeks. I mean, of course, yoga is always good, some swimming, but we don't want any more fitness, so we don't need to add the cycling to it. And some might say, well, the cycling feels, you know, like it's flushing out the legs and moving some achiness and soreness around, and it feels good to activate. But um, there's other ways to do that. Swimming is great for that. Yoga is great for that. And even going for a walk is great for that. But in general, rest right now and training. When we're training, we're on. When we're not training, we're resting and off is more critical in this final 17 to 20-ish weeks phase of the training, of the 50K training plan. So if we put it together, um, yes, that looks more like 12, 7 to 12 hours, actually. Um, so let's put that into the week. Um, oh, one last thing. So we talked about the weekend progression. That was going sim plus rocking, then 5 plus a 10K, then 4 plus a 10K, and 3 plus none, an off day. The hills, we said 16 times 1 explosive with 2 miles at race feel after. Well, in week 18, we're only going to go 12 times that one plus two miles at race feel. Then on week 19, we'll go 10 times one. And of course, staying connected to that explosive power um, plus two miles at race feel. And then finally, week 21, eight times one minute still with two miles at race feel. So that's the progression of the hills. We start pretty high, but we start bringing it down. Because then we'll go into race week, which I'll describe separately. So and when we look at that in a week, we're still on our Mondays, rest days. I would say now the Tuesdays, leg speed and bounding is now with the hills. So Tuesdays is a hills day. Wednesdays, if you're doing core and strength, you do that. And then maybe an easy 30, 40 minute run after the core and the strength immediately after. So your strength should only be taking 45 to 60 minutes all in. And then you clean that up with 30 to 40 minutes easy after that strength, after that gym time or on the treadmill, just nice and relaxed, connected to your running, connecting that 85% max effort and that more controlled strength phase, or um, not phase, strength um, output to a good running form so that when you're done, you feel tired, but you'll recover quickly. You didn't go to max and you connected back to the activity, the sport, the movements, the discipline that you are applying the strength to, so running. And I'm a big fan of that, as you guys know. Then Thursdays becomes our changing speeds workout. That's the one where we're doing steady at 15 to 20 minutes of zone three tempo. Um, Friday would become our cross training day. That's where you do the yoga. That's where you do the swim. 
that's where you do something of an active recovery if you're walking. I would not do an easy jog. I would stay off my legs for the weekend so that those feel great. We want those last four Saturdays and Sundays to feel really good. The sim to feel good. The 5 plus 10K to feel good. Of course, now the 4 plus 10K. And finally, we want that three-hour run to feel like I'm ready. I'm ready for this to go. So when we add that up, the zero on Monday in hours, the 90 minutes on Tuesday with the hills at 16 minutes, 16 times one explosive, so two minutes, 16 times two is 32 minutes plus two miles at race pace, let's say race field, let's say that's 12 minute miles, that's 25 plus 30, that's an hour. So yeah, to the hill and back, maybe 15 minutes. So yeah, about 90 minutes, the core strength and easy run and it's another 90 minutes, so now we're at three hours. The changing speed is maybe an hour and a half. We're doing maybe three rounds of that 15 to 20 minutes with six, seven, eight minutes easy. <clears throat> so now we're at uh, four and a half. The changing speed we just did, the cross training, you know, hopefully that isn't any hours. So we're still at four and a half. Maybe you done some, have done some other stuff. And so we're at five hours for the week. Then the last, that sim weekend is a long weekend. That's seven hours, right? Because the sim plus the rucking will be about seven, eight hours. So this week, it'll end up being 12-ish hours. That five plus that seven is 12. But then the five hours the following week on the long weekend plus the 10K, that makes it only a six-hour weekend. So now we're down to 11-ish hours. Four and a 10K on the following week, we're down to 10-ish hours and so on. So the hours are decreasing from a max of about 12 total for the week to about seven, right? That last week when we're resting and the hill repeats are shorter and hopefully you're not doing any more core strength and stuff a week out of the race. So you only have about three hours during the week, three, four hours during the week and a three-hour run on the weekend. So that's six, seven hours. So that should be coming together quite nicely and so now we're on our rest week and our race week and so when you think about a rest or a taper week um, going into a 50k or longer you're not going to have this magical back off that's going to feel amazing and you don't need to keep this sharp edge because you're not looking for explosive power in swimming shorter running events and shorter triathlon events you want the edge in order to explode right from the start to be connected from the first moment that the gun that the time that the clock starts we don't need that in endurance events we want to fail fresh but we want to be able to sustain that effort for many many hours and so to be too sharp um, would be jeopardizing trying to figure that out too perfectly we have plenty of time in our event to get settled in and to feel good. And so the rest becomes important. Remember now, going into race week, we've got that Sunday off already because we didn't do the follow-up run on from the Saturday. So we have Sunday off. Monday, I would do an easy 45-minute jog. Why? That's just to, like we did in the beginning of the plan, to reconnect to running for the week but to just stay light and activate. Tuesday, I would do a few hill repeats, maybe three in a 45 minute run. 
something like that. And this is, this is general stuff for a taper week because everybody is a little different. The only thing I would build into a taper week is a 90 minute run in there somewhere. I wouldn't make it too hilly, wouldn't make it too steep, wouldn't make it too taxing, but just activating some sort of endurance, metabolism, mindset, um, strength and durability component. Anything over an hour, you start settling into, all right, this is going longer. And that's what we want to activate. Not long, but 90 minutes is great for that. Doesn't necessarily mean need to be flat, but nor would I do this on a treadmill. But I would go somewhere around 90 minutes and just that be my long run for the week. Now, if the 50K is a training day towards a bigger event, of course, um, I would probably still push into um, a three-hour run during the week. But again, that all this changes once you're an experienced athlete of many multiple, uh, many multiple, geez, of having many uh, 50Ks and 50-milers, maybe even 100K, 100-miler under your belt so that we know how to stimulate um endurance and then how to stimulate rest because remember everybody i know i don't usually say that um remember teaching our body how to recover and rest is important too just because you're not doing anything in your training um doesn't mean your body knows what to do that with that and absorb it it takes time for the body to absorb rest to activate and do everything it needs to do on rest and you get better at resting just as how I, just as much as I talked about how we need to teach our body how to absorb food you would think well I've learned that since I've been a baby well absorbing calories while doing exercise is one thing and same thing resting and recovering from training is different than just normal resting and recovering and so as you become more experienced as an endurance athlete, in general, as an athlete, doesn't even have to be an endurance athlete, as you get more experience as an athlete, and many of you know this, you will see that uh, you get better at resting, you get better at absorbing the recovery, you feel um, the energy being um, rebuilt or stored, especially in tapering. As you get better in tapering and getting more familiar with race prep and race week and or 10 to two weeks out when it's a big event or an A race, uh, you will notice that you, you can feel your body storing the energy that it's not applying um, to training. So you can feel at the end of a hour run, like I could keep going, but I'm banking this energy. I can feel it being stored. I can feel there's extra, there's more there. And that's what athletes become better and better at recognizing and feeling. And of course, that builds confidence. And that also gets you excited for the race because you feel that banking of energy, of fitness, and you're slowly building that up. And that ties into why a lot of athletes before their events say they're ready to explode. They're excited to race. They're bursting at the seams. Basically, that's that sensation. They've built up so much. They've, they have so much extra energy because they're not using it for training, they're tapering, um, that they're ready now to burst at the seams and share that, or uh, uh, not share, allow that energy to flow out of them. 
Now, of course, we know in an endurance event, but in any event you're getting ready for, you don't want to do that explosion and burst in the first 10% of your event. Um, we want to apply that energy over time. And unfortunately, energy doesn't work like that when it comes to um, our bodies. I don't know how it works in other fields, but it's hard to hold back energy because it's not like the energy you hold back now in a 50K is going to be available at 24 miles. Um, you're going to be tired either way, but it's energy more from a cognitive standpoint, from a freshness standpoint, from a mental focus, focus standpoint, from a motivation standpoint, from making good decisions standpoint, all that. So that's what we're doing this week. We're banking energy. So I would do one longer run of 90 minutes, one shorter um, run of 45 minutes where we're um, doing a few hill explosive, maybe 10 second, 15 second hill repeats. So maybe six of those. So short, but so powerful that you quickly recover from them, but they're enough to really get your heart rate up and really get your breathing heavy. And you don't have to do those in a row, but maybe over the course of the 45 minutes, you find some sections where it's a great um, explosive workout. A lot of times I tell athletes um, a big grass field, maybe with a hill on it or a park where there's grass and you can just run there, do six or 10 short because 10 seconds is not much of a hill. Um, you do some quick bounding or powerful, strong hill repeats, uphill, high knees, explosive power, good push off with the calves and so forth, and then jog at home. 45 minutes, that's all you need. So now we have three workouts, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, we're going to throw a rest day in there. And most 50Ks are on a Saturday. So then that rest day, either on Wednesday or Thursday, you threw in, so let's say if it's on a Saturday, let's say your race is on a Saturday. I would put that 90-minute run on Wednesday. I would put the 245s, I'd wrap it around it. So I would do the Monday, the 45-minute easy. I'd take Tuesday off again. I'd do Wednesday, the 90 minutes. I'd do Thursday, the short, explosive 10-second hill repeats. I'd take Friday off again. Um, if it's on a Sunday, I would probably, because now we're getting further out, we have a little bit more rest, we had that previous Sunday off, I would do 60 minutes easy, 45 to 60 minutes easy on Monday. I would do the bounding explosive hill repeats on Tuesday. I would take Wednesday off. On Thursday, I would do that 90 minutes. Friday, I would take off. And Saturday, I would do an easy 20-minute jog. Just to, um, you know, get the blood flowing the day before, and then race. And then the race strategy. So now you've already, you know what time you want to go to sleep. You know how, when you, uh, what you're going to have for dinner because you've simulated this. You know what time you're having breakfast. You know your fueling and hydration strategy for the day. And so from that standpoint, the logistics of the the event are figured out, the things that you can control. And of course, there's going to be things you can't control with regards to weather, and but hopefully you are familiar with the terrain and what, what lies ahead in your course. And the other thing is everything you know on your fueling and hydration strategy, plan on it um, diverting. 
not necessarily being completely different, but that your taste buds and that your interests in drink and fuel might shift somewhat. And so have options available, know what they have at the aid stations so that when you get there, you knew, all right, they had potato chips, M&Ms, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, some salted potatoes, some Twizzlers, but also some Cliff Bars, some gels, some bananas and stuff like that. And you might get there and go, I practiced this where I had a, I had a feeling or I've been told that my taste buds might shift a little bit and that you have you know what to expect and are fueling, 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 fueling is so important. So that's probably how it looks. We have gotten through a 50K training plan and it looks like it took us 21 to 22 weeks to get through it. So that's how this stuff adds up, the hours and the volume and why for so many of my athletes, and I've talked about this on the podcast, the training plan takes longer than just looking at it on a calendar and saying, 16 weeks out, I want to do this. 12 weeks out, I want to do this. Life gets in the way. And I call them wedge weeks. We've talked about that here. But in general, there's wedge days and wedge weeks and wedge uh, a couple days in a row, right? Let's say half a week. And But if we stick to the high-level concepts of what we want to get in in seven days or 10 days or in five days, depending on what kind of athlete you are, you will have done this is more than 80%. This You have done 90% of the work. If you tie in these podcasts of these 21 weeks plus a taper week, um, you will be well, well, well prepared for a successful 50K. Not just a successful one, but one where you feel good. I always say to all my athletes, I want you fitter than the course. That's number one. This plan leaves you fitter than the course. And secondly, I want you enjoying the experience. I want the last 10 miles of a 31-mile ultra run to still be somewhat enjoyable. We all feel fatigued, no matter how fit we are. The winners of the race to those barely getting in the cutoff, we're all fatigued on the back 10, 11, 15 miles of the race, of course. Whether that's an Ironman, whether that's an Ultraman, whether that's a 100-mile run, we're all achy and fatigued. But you're still physically fresh and mentally fresh enough to enjoy it, to take in the views and the sights and the experience and the nighttime and the lights and the, wow, it was meaningful. It wasn't just a negative, miserable slog. It wasn't filled with self-doubt and why am I doing this? And this isn't enjoyable. That's what we don't want. That's not um, an experience. That's more drudgery. And it won't promote our soul and our interest to do this healthy endurance lifestyle longer and continue with it. Because as I always say, if you are not connected with your endurance self, I think you're missing something. And so this plan helps you hopefully get through that. I'm curious from any one of you that have applied it and done a race I would love to hear from you how it went. I would love to hear from you how when you put this training plan together, you felt in the week leading up to the race well prepared. I'd love to get your feedback because the next one I'm going to do is a 70.3 plan. Um, And if I can hear from you prior, I can already include this type of um, concept and your feedback into the next training plan that we're going to discuss here. 
on the Weekly Word Podcast. So let me know of questions. Please send me feedback, your thoughts, any questions regarding the training plan. And then, yeah, we'll get going on the next one here next week. Let's just dive right into the 70.3. So I hope I describe it okay. I know it's a podcast because you can pause and take notes. But I try to break down the overall concepts, the week itself and why. Then I break down the week by day and the hours. And then, yeah, sort of the thinking behind it. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you. All right. Well, I can tell already that um, we are going pretty long here. And so I will go into the lactate threshold test and break down and what it all means on the next episode, episode 105. I really wanted to take the time to explain the 50K training plan to close it out with some clarity, with some deliverables, with some sensations, with some observations. So hopefully I did that. So let's dive into, um, I'd say we have time for maybe another email or two. So let me take a look here what we got. All right, so this one looks interesting. Um, By the way, I take all your questions for many of you that are newer to the podcast, and I put them into a sort of questions folder, and then I go or get to them sort of in chronological order, meaning the oldest, oldest ones I try to get to first. If they fall into a main topic line, let's say threshold testing or determining zones or fueling and hydrating or nutrition, I group them to a podcast then where I will discuss those concepts on a bigger um, picture or um, as a major topic. So please don't think I've overlooked any of them. I also have a lot of requests every week and I want to make sure that I get to most of the concepts and I'm not overlooking some blind spots here. Um, Hi, Chris. I've been listening to the podcast for the last couple of months now. Ever since I saw you on Rich Roll's podcast, I've started from your first podcast, and I'm steadily working my way through at about episode 32. Well, you're in for something because there's a lot of that podcast from when I started to now has definitely changed. And mainly, I feel pretty comfortable just talking on the mic. Um, Anyhow, I have a question. You talk about Z2 and have... And I've been predominantly in zone two during the base phase of a full Ironman training plan for the past 12 weeks. And I moved to build phase one this coming Monday. I did a lactate threshold test on a treadmill late February and set the machine to 1% incline and ran at 14 kilometers an hour for 30 minutes and took the average heart rate for the last 20 minutes, which was 162. It really pushed me to my limit. So I set up my heart rate zones against that number. Interesting. So I'll, uh, those of you, again, new to the podcast, I interrupt questions here like this. And oftentimes I might answer the next things down, but I like to sort of talk in the moment. 30 minutes is a long time for a uh, threshold test. Um, you might as well just, if you're going to go 30 minutes, again, all these views are my opinion. I'm not an exercise physiologist nor a scientist, but again, I've been in this field for a long time and worked with a lot of different people and a lot of exercise physiologists. And my closest best friend is ran the Stanford Human Performance Lab for many years, and I was down there with him a lot, as well as 
I see him every week and run a lot of concepts by him. <laughs> and I've been through the ringer of a lot of testing and training from Olympic training centers and plans and coaches to the triathlon world and ultra running world and ultra extreme um, world with regards to testing on top of Pike's Peak, um, things like that. Um, treadmill testing, strength testing, um, underwater testing, distance testing. It's, yeah, I've been through it a lot. So, or around it a lot. And with that being said, that's why I have my opinions. But again, they're my opinions. So, anyway. 30 minutes is a long time. And the reason I say that is because if you're going to do 30 minutes, you might as well get into the phase of true lactate threshold, which is an hour long best effort test, and then just using that data. So I would um, encourage you to not, um, or encourage most, if you're going to field test, not to put yourself under that strain, because psychologically we suffer. We, we cannot hold the accurate effort the proper effort to get an accurate insight. That's why so much of our testing is designed the way it is. It's not physically, it's psychologically, it's mentally being able to push ourselves in a lab without competition or without a specific future outcome um, just to get a number. It doesn't give us as accurate of a snapshot. Four-minute stages, six-minute stages, 20 minutes, two times 10 minutes, not 20 minutes, two times 10 minutes is easier to do. Um, I would go longer outside, let's say on a bike, a 20, 30-minute climb, steady incline, because the changing scenery and the movement and the fresh air, it makes time go by quicker. We all know this. Um, you've all experienced this. So um, it's hard to say... Um, that the data for 30 minutes really captured truly the essence of what you were at that time, end of February 2019, at 1% incline, um, to give you that average heart rate. And again, the more vague the data is, the more we're not really in the space that we really need to do a field test that, that, that is that much different than the formulas in our watches or with age minus so-and-so and so. -and -so or uh, 220 minus your age, or 180 minus this. and So, something to be aware of. The reason I like the 5 by one mile test, which is not my test. I've seen it done by many others. The reason I like that test so much is it's repeatable. It can be done many times. It can be done monthly. And it allows that check-in. And it's short enough to wrap our mind around that 95% effort. Um, we can do seven, eight, nine minutes of an effort and reward ourselves with a minute rest. If, if I just said go out and run a 10k, your best effort 10k, those values would be significantly different than the five by one mile test. And significant, I mean by five to seven heart rate difference. And now, as you all know, when determining zones, five to seven heart rate is a lot because it can change the the progression of your training as well as um, the sensations and um, enjoyment you get while training the proper zones. So, um, so I set up my heart rate zones against that number. I did the exact same test tonight, same machine, same speed, same incline. Average heart rate was 154. Great, which I can't quite believe, but what I do, but what do I do with that result? 
I didn't push myself to the limit during the 30 minutes as I thought at the time, based on the last test, it would blow my lungs out, but it didn't. There you go. See, <laughs> here we're back confirming to what I was talking about. Now you might say, Chris, you already read the email prior. And I wouldn't talk like this about stuff if I already knew the outcome. Um, what do I do with the result? Well, technically, if you, if you feel good about having replicated effort, and obviously the equipment test and blah, 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 time of day and so forth, to do the same, <clears throat> same speed, same incline for 30 minutes on the same machine, and you're eight beats lower, that's great. That's a sign that your heart doesn't have to work as hard for the same output now that you've done it two months later. Um, so that's what that would mean. That's how I would interpret that. That's a good thing. Now, at times you would say, you no, not you would say, you could say an exercise physiologist and some data um, crunchers would extrapolate sometimes that lower heart rate could also mean some fatigue and that you're not able to push the heart rate higher. But you wrote, I didn't push myself to the limit during the 30 minutes as I thought at the time. So therefore, you were not at the limit. And so therefore, this isn't, I pushed myself even harder. I was ready to puke and my heart rate was six lower or eight lower, excuse me. Um, I think it is more in control as I thought it would blow my lungs out, but it didn't. So um I'm not sure how to understand the, that sentence. I didn't push myself to the limit during the 30 minutes as I thought at the time, but based, based on, so I put that number into training peaks and my zones are really impact, a major shift to lower zones. Correct, as it should. Do I use that number and set my zones off it or do I retest and blow myself up? <laughs> I'm worried as I want to have the right, all the right zones in place for the next phases of training. Listen, this is what you set the, the standard with. So you did the work. You did the 30 minutes in late February. Now you, you suffered through 30 minutes again, which is a long time. I would struggle with that. Um, and it gave you this number. Use that number. That's the snapshot for now. That's fine. I would use it. You did the same thing. You're not constantly changing the parameters of the test. So yes, at a lower heart rate, you're putting forth a similar effort. Now, how that impacts your zones? Yes, it means you're pulling your fitness back in order to have the same stimulus. Remember, this isn't, if the challenge that we all get caught up in is paces and wattages. But what we should be thinking, and this is a very critical point, I hope for many of you, it's how our body is responding and adapting to the training. So if the same stress of running at an effort level is um, created upon our body, upon our heart, upon our respiratory system, upon our muscular system, and it creates that stress, that might be at a lower heart rate, but it still is creating the same stress on the body. And so therefore, we want to keep that impact, um, in, in fact in mind. Another way to say that is, let's say back in February at a, that lower zone, at the zone two, you were running maybe 10 minute miles. It felt like a slog, but you kept within your zones. 
Now you're fitter, your heart rates seem to respond to the same pace at a lower heart rate. So now you put in the zones and now you're back to, at that even lower heart rate, back to running 10 minute miles, right? And you're going, well, what is this? Why am I fitter? Well, one, same pace, lower heart rate. That's a good thing. That's a sign that your heart has to work less. But also from a training stimulus standpoint, what is happening is when the training plan or your coach or big picture concept of what you're doing, it still needs to be that zone two is an aerobic low tax on the body stimulus. So because you're fitter, you have to slow down more in order to stay aerobic. And that way, the, the differential to when you go higher speeds, higher effort, you're, you're still able to be fresh and recovered and out of the gray zone in order to go hard enough on hard days. I know it sounds confusing, but when you look at your body as a um, separate entity that is being um, stressed and rested, stressed and rested, zone two as your fitter might mean at a lower heart rate and you're still running the same paces. But this is what I've talked about in many tests in the past. There's two outcomes in fitness gains in testing and we'll talk about this on the lactate threshold test, is same wattage, let's say on the bike now, but let's say, let's stick to running. Let's say your, um, your threshold one, or let's say your lactate threshold, right, from this test, from last time was 162, and you're running a seven-minute mile. Well, now your fitness has grown to running a seven-minute mile, so you haven't gotten faster, but you have less tax cost on the body. That's one outcome. You could have also, if you've done the test differently, you could have also at the very similar heart rate, let's say hit 162 average again, but run a 640 minute mile average. Well, now you got faster at the same heart rate, same outcome, but the heart rate zones are adjusted for the load on you and your body. Heart rate zones aren't adjusted for the pace that you would like to do. Back to that original concept. You train the body for where it is and the adaptations you want it to have, not for where you want to be and the fitness you want to have. So I hope that answers it. But I would use those numbers and it is what it is. Um, and guess what? You're probably gonna take another test before you race. And so hopefully that'll continue to improve. Okay, well, that will close it out for this week, um, episode 104. And so we'll dive into 105 with lactate threshold testing. I'll, I'll commit to that right now. <laughs> and then, yeah, um, I'm sending out a newsletter this week, so hopefully you guys are all signed up for that. I'm going to talk a fair amount about the Qatar Quest on there, which is really coming together nicely, and the group of participants is also starting to come together nicely. It's going to be a nice, um, balanced group of guys and girls and personalities and abilities, and yeah, I'm really starting to get excited about the um, the adventure that that will be in November. And otherwise, have a great week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. For those of you that are new to the podcast, um, I try to get one out every week. But um, 
sometimes life, and in this case, training, as I'm in the final phases for Alaska Man, um, gets in the way. But also, I'm heading to Europe in uh, two weeks with my children, and I'll podcast from Europe for the first time. Never done that. Um, but it's a family trip with regards to seeing one of my brothers. Um, well, actually, a bunch of my brothers, but family reunion, but also some more depth to that that I'll explain. And then I'm off to Boulder in late May, so uh, and doing a sort of a mini training trip, training camp there with a few of my buddies, those that have been with me with regards to Ironman prep and training. And my good close friend lives out there in Boulder, and so I'm flying out there to train with him in some big mountains and some cool temps and some new terrain, and I'm uh, going to push the envelope in getting ready for this Alaska man, which the more and more I look at it, the 6,200 feet of elevation gain in the, on the run um, is going to be quite a challenge, and my trail running skills will hopefully come into play successfully. But um, that 6,200 feet looks to be all in the last 10, 11 miles. So I would say of that 6,200 feet of elevation gain, a good 5,000 seems to be in the last 10 miles, which if you think about that, that's pretty brutal. So my training is starting to switch, just like um, in the 50K plan, to more specificity um, about the swim, um, cold water that I can prep for, I feel pretty good about that. The biking, 112 to 114 miles up the Alaska Highway. Pretty familiar and good about that, Um, and it's not too hilly. So uh, that I I know I'm pretty um, capable of doing the way I'd like to do it. But that run is becoming more and more the focus. And so I will spend what is now early May until mid-June these next six to seven weeks focusing primarily on the ability to run off the bike with a huge climb aspect on the back end of a marathon in it. And so that's a durability question, that's a pacing question, that's an energy question, and then that's a strength question because if you keep in mind from a race like Alaska Man, because we go up a major climb um, and the challenge becomes the downhill you come down that major climb and then go back up it and so when you're doing that much elevation downhill the pounding on the quads and the knees um, and the front of your feet right um, becomes dramatic so that if you are not ready for that the next climb of going back up that mountain will become quite slow hiking um, limited And it might be hiking anyway, based off the steepness. But again, you want to make up the time, run the runnable sections like the 50K plan. And the downhill and early on on the uphill, maybe, I don't know, um, will be a runnable section. So I need to prepare for that. So that's a lot of downhill fast running, a lot of strength work, and uh, also mentally knowing how those last 10 miles are going to just suck. So anyway... Have a great week, everybody, and um, I look forward to talking to you guys on episode 105. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Thank you so much for supporting me with this podcast and continuing to spread the word. It's grown quite substantially. There are a lot of people listening on this. 
um, Stitcher. Um, it's on iTunes, of course. It's gotten to, um, we just expanded it to two or three more platforms. And uh, yeah, it's getting downloaded. So thank you for that. And uh, I hope you continue to enjoy it and tune in and send me updates and questions so that we can keep this community of ultra endurance knowledge open and sharing and just active. All right. Thank you so much.